0: I'm James Gomes, and for the last 13 or 14 years, I've been rereading Siddhartha.
1: Okay, so when we talked about this originally, the first thing that caught my attention, forget the book, which I had already read before I talked to you, but rereading books, I think I have probably reread in my entire life, maybe five, six books total, and I never read a third time. I've never read a book a third time. Do you normally reread books you love or is this really a rare exception for this one book?
0: I do reread it. There's so many books to read. So, I mean, it's kind of the rereading is safe. It's very safe. You know what you're going to get on a reread. So there's a few, but when I was less of a reader, I would reread books more, more like watching a movie. So I've read into the wild probably five to six times. But most of those times when I read that book, I, I wasn't really a reader. I read uh, Tuesday with Maury probably three or four times. I read Lance Armstrong's book probably like three or four times because okay. I used to like him. And uh, I am actually reading War and Peace for the third time
1: of all the things to read and reread war and peace. Well, you know, you said before I was a reader. So was there a particular thing that triggered you where you like, all of a sudden something opened up and you're like, I call myself a reader. Now I like to read in some way in which before this moment, you're like, I'm not a reader. I don't consider myself a reader.
0: Yes, definitely. I, I would say in college, I was the type of college student that did zero reading. Okay. (laughs) And, I got by by just paying attention really well in class and taking notes, and then I would study a little bit, but I definitely didn't do any assigned readings. I typically wouldn't even buy the books. Okay, even. you're not
1: even cracking the books, not even for tests. No. You're like, I'm just not looking at the book?
0: Okay. No, well, because the teachers always lie on the first day, you need this book, and then after you know, the first couple courses, you realize, no, I don't need the book at all. Right. And so I was that type of, of college student, so I was definitely not a reader. And then I went to Europe after I graduated, backpacked around Europe for a summer. And I had this idea that Europeans are way smarter, way more cultured. So when I came back to the US, I did the logical thing. I I wanted to become smarter. And so I decided I would do that because I would, by starting to read books. And so I started reading books then. At, At that point, I had, I mean, the books that I had read before that would have been like Lance Armstrong's, It's Not About the Bike. Into the Wild, Tuesday with Maury. You know, just very randomly someone would would tell me about a book and I would start reading it and actually finish it. But maybe I'd read 10 books in my life. Wow.
1: Okay. Uh so you decide you come back and decide you're gonna read. Was it easy, or did you have to like build up? There's all this crap online I see regularly. Where people are like, you know, you're supposed to read to make yourself smarter and better, and it'll make you. You're really. It's for self improvement and personal growth, and all these habits about like you're going to have to build this habit. It's like a muscle. Your attention span is going to be low. When you decided, oh, I'm going to read more. When you came back from Europe, was it easy, or did you have to like grind for a while? Did you force yourself to read?
0: It was. It was easy for me. I I I read books like The Alchemist and uh, The Little Prince, and there was there was this forum that i was part of something along the lines of alternative lifestyle you know something so so i was getting some book recommendations from them Uh, i had read into the wild so i had this random note card that i had written a bunch of different books down that john krakauer had mentioned so i was dabbing it but those books were a little probably a little too tough for me at the time but you know so so i was just random. I'd never really read fi- fiction, so I was reading some pretty simple, easy. Uh, the, Celest- the Celestine Prophecy was yeah. one of the first books I read. Things like that.
1: Okay, so like accessible. Not you're not trying to get into like poetry from the 1500s or like Shakespearean plays. You're like, no, I'm not tackling that stuff. That's like written contemporary. That's more readable.
0: Yes, and then I I probably transitioned. I, I eventually went back and read all the books I was supposed to read in high school. Okay saw that those were good. And then that after that stage, I, I probably jumped into something like war and peace. And at that point, I, I was in pretty good reading condition.
1: Okay. Uh, when did you encounter Hesse's Siddhartha?
0: So it would have been probably months of the first few months of getting back from Europe. So two two 2010.
1: Okay, so one of the first books you tumbled into after you got back and you're like, Pro-
0: you're Probably one of the first handful of books.
1: What about that first reading made you every year or every so often read it and reread it and reread it?
0: Nostalgia has to be you know, the main driving force. I, th- I think the book is good. It is, it is a fun story. It's an easy read. It's quick. So all those things make it also... A lot easier to reread. Whereas, like a book like War and Peace, that's that's a, uh, takes a lot. Of, uh, so, I, I'm rereading that a chapter a day for a year. So, I'm rereading over the, the whole year. So, I, I think, like Siddhartha, you, you can sit down and reread in one day if you're set, you know, you set the time aside and you're focused. So, I would, it was almost spiritual for me. I would fast typically the first few years, like I wouldn't eat and I would just read Siddhartha. And that was, Almost like a, almost like a new beginning for for the year. I I typically do it in in December or January.
1: So you'd make like a whole thing, like sort of like uh, reflecting the same kind of fasting techniques that the that the monks and the mystics inside Siddhartha were doing. You're like, I literally would change my physical environment, change my habits, and then read this book as kind of like a reset. Kind of yeah, it, it
0: just made sense. It, it was it was a way for me to kind of experience it while I was doing it.
1: Okay, so when I read Siddhartha, I had already read a lot of Buddhism stuff. And so then it was interesting because Siddhartha, obviously the name of a name for the Buddha, but this is not the Buddha in the character. So when somebody when somebody asks you, if you've ever described this book, what's like your elevator pitch like? What is Herman Hesse's Siddhartha about?
0: This this is one that I've adopted from some something I read, but... Hermann Hesse's response to Buddhism is the novel Siddhartha. Okay. (laughs) So Hermann Hesse likes Buddhism. He likes Hinduism. He likes Taoism. He even likes probably Christianity in certain forms of that. But this is, this is his response. This is his answer.
1: Did it? Did reading this? Did you then go like, "Well, I need to understand all the things he's countering, all the things he's responding to"? Or you're like, "I'm just gonna stay here. I don't need to understand everything about Hinduism that Hess is thinking about, everything about Taoism he's thinking about."
0: Yeah, I pretty much ignored all that for years. I've, I've, I've been. Slowly revisiting some some of those ideas. I've actually recently realized that I would consider the character Siddhartha. So yeah, we'll just stick with Siddhartha is the character in Hermann Hesse's book. Yep. And if we talk about the Buddha, his name in the book is is Gotama. So we'll just call him Gotama for anyone that's that's familiar with Buddhism. So so I I think it makes a lot more sense that Siddhartha is a Hindu character and and kind of. I think you can almost ignore the, the Buddhism, some, like some people, there's 12 chapters and they say the four, uh, you know, the eight, the four noble truths and the eight part, but I don't think that's like, I, I don't know, that's stretching too much or like forcing it too much.
1: That's interesting. Um, it makes me think of also, I got really into, maybe I had the same young man's experience reading Alan Watts, the book. And he talks about Zen Buddhism in there. And he talks about Taoism. He doesn't talk some about Hinduism, but you realize when you get later and you get into Buddhism, you're like, oh, Alan Watts stuff, more earthy, more humorous, more down in the dust with the people. And like Hinduism, just these cycles going on and on. And there's not necessarily a lot you can do. Whereas Buddhism is much more about controlling yourself. Um, Hinduism, I don't know, it just feels more playful. And I thought, Alan Watts was really, I'm like, oh, he's really into Buddhism and he is into Zen Buddhism, but his stuff really comes out of Hinduism. So maybe it's that same thing. Like Hesse's sees Buddhism. I don't know. Is Buddhism too much work in the book? The character of Gotama. is there some, uh, what are the kind of path that, how, how does Siddhartha's path deviate from the other mystics he runs into?
0: He's skeptical about teaching. The book is, it, it's very ironic because from <laughs> Maybe chapter one, he's already hinting that his his father and and the Brahmins can't teach him anything. He's he's already absorbed everything that they have to offer. Okay. In every sing, single chapter, he's like, "No, you can't teach me. I'm moving on." "No, you can't teach me. I'm moving on." So it's it's just that fact that uh, self discovery, self self uh, realization, which is also I think more of a Hindu idea as well, but that you you have to go out and figure it out. For yourself. So he already has that bias that he's not going to be able to learn. He's not truly going to be able to learn enlightenment from the Buddha. The teachings are good. He likes the teachings, sounds great, but he's not really going to understand or know or capture what the Buddha experienced unless he does it himself.
1: Is that something you we've talked about also is you're like, you're like, I I think this book is like, it's kind of a young man's book. And if you come to it really old, I'm not sure it resonates the same way. Is that character? It sounds like it's kind of embodying like this brash, like I'm young. You don't have anything to tell me. I got to figure this stuff out on my own.
0: Yeah. So I was very much in that camp. I think I really identified with the young Siddhartha and I kind of agreed. Like every time that he experienced and had this new, uh, this new awakening, I was like, "Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I like that." And so I was, I was a bit of a experienced junkie. I was someone that was doing backpacking. i after I'd read Into the Wild, I'd, I'd read it very, maybe like a few weeks before my spring break, and I went hitchhiking over spring break in college. So it, you know, I was very much into. Ex- exploring, doing things that, that Mark Twain quote about in 20 years, you're gonna, you're gonna regret. Uh, anyways, the one about, about regrets.
1: <laughs> you, you took know, it to heart. You're like, I yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like, I
0: it. love that quote, you know? Uh, so I was all about living life to the fullest. And so I really resonated with Siddhartha's journey I also was having a little bit of an existential I guess dread. I had I had uh, fallen in love in Europe for the first time backpacking and it didn't work out and it, I was a bit heartbroken and I was kind of realizing things I was looking into teaching science. I was you know studying some physics and it's kind of all that com- coming together Asking bigger questions, kind of getting into some like el- elementary philosophy, and Siddhartha kind of came into that that same group of of ideas. And I, I think I still re- really relate with with a lot of uh, Hesse's and Siddhartha's ideas.
1: Um, it's so you you mentioned the Into the Wild. That book is, um that was the thing that was taught when I. <clears throat> helped student teach a class in college, I think one of the three books we did, I think I did the Into the Wild section, and it's intoxicating because it has the. it's a real story, it's the main character, Christopher McCandless, kind of doesn't fit into society, and just like you said, he kind of goes, he wants to go be on his own, and so he'll go join with other people, he'll show up in a small town and have a job for a while to make money and get what he needs, and then he'll leave again, he'll leave for months at a time away from other people. And eventually the true story of Christopher McCandless <clears throat> has a dark side because eventually he winds up by himself in a place he can't – basically can't get out of. He can't get out of and he starves to death or he poisons himself on poisonous food. Um, he runs into problems because he's by himself. So it kind of – it balances out the – it's fun to go out and be the rugged individualist and it reminds you, oh, being a rugged individualist is extremely dangerous. Did you ever go as far as Christopher McCandless and like really put yourself in situations that felt – Shaky, and did you ever scare yourself? I,
0: I mean, I definitely took risks that I wouldn't take again as someone that's older, but I wasn't as extreme as him. Okay. I mean, for me, it was more like I was up at a mountain, and it started snowing in August, which I had no idea was possible, and right. so I was extremely unprepared. So I was just very uncomfortable for thirty-six hours. <laughs>
1: Day and a half of discomfort, okay. yeah.
0: or like the first time I went backpacking, I same like same thing. i I was in Yosemite. The elevation there is about eight or nine thousand feet the the spot that I was backpacking around. and I was looking at lightweight backpacking things which I didn't realize were all desert environments, and it was summer, so I figured I you know I'd be fine. I got lucky this this is more hindsight, but I got lucky. It could have been very cold out there. And had it been very cold, I would have been miserable. So like that's that's a good example of something that could have gone bad, it didn't go that bad for me, but just little things like that.
1: What was the shift? So you're young, you kind of have this early existential crisis. You're like, what am I here for? What is the point of life? What is this existence? Existential dread, existential crisis. But now, years later, I mean, you're kind of like the Hindu homesteader where you have a family and you have responsibilities and it's a different mindset. How does your mind, do you feel like these questions that bothered you years ago are settled now or do you, or you, have you set them aside? How how do you still feel about these existential questions about why are we here and what's going on?
0: Yeah. I almost never think about them. It's more (laughs) of a, it's probably a combination of setting them aside because I don't think they're worth my time. I mean, you know, some, it's a, it's always fun to think about dying like not fun, it's always interesting, uh, yes. not and not fun, but uh, you know, I mean like i just I just don't uh I don't have the time and energy to to care about those questions or and so um'm yeah I, I guess I'm way more focused on middle life, being a dad, kind of uh family life, kind of figuring out what's what our family's going to do, and not so much I mean, I don't know, I still think about stuff like that, but yeah it's different it's more now now it's now it's just it's just pure nostalgia like i remember what it was like i i relate with with the young man siddhartha i definitely relate to the christopher McCandlesses. but when i read them now it's not like yeah i definitely agree with that it's like no that's kind of dumb but like i get it
1: (laughs) oh so not only um you can reflect back on wow this really got me and then decades later you're like I have had that reaction where there's certain things you read and you go back and you're like, uh, me at the time and other people in that age, I recognize how that's not a dumb question and that's a, an important experience to have. But now much later, you're like, I, I can't repeat that. that. Like I already know, I already have the answer to that question or that thing just doesn't bother me anymore. What does it feel like?
0: Yeah, it's, kind of in, in between there, I guess, I guess it's more like, wow, Christopher McCandless is really extreme, Yeah, but. I do still relate with a lot of those aspects of of being dissatisfied with society. That's that that's another one. R- very strong connection between McCandless and Siddhartha. Is they're very unsatisfied with society and the people around them. And so I can relate with that. I'm very much you know, in society. I'm not planning on leaving anytime soon, but like I get it. Like I'm not I'm not I guess I'm I guess I'm way more acceptable uh, of society now. And yeah, everyone can't just leave society. That that's not going to work out well.
1: Is it what is it is it the is it the politics? Is it the values of the people around you? Is it just having all these people around all the time? What what was the part of what part of of society for Christopher McCandless? It seems like he needed solitude in addition to having some countercultural thoughts. He actually when he would go to small towns, they would describe the people who talked about him he kind of kept to himself, but he was friendly and nice and he got along with everyone, but he just needed solitude for you. Is it what, what bothers you? Is it the values, the society, the politics, the advertising? What's the thing that rankles you about normal life?
0: So originally it was the consumerism, the, okay. the materialism as in owning physical things. I've, I've kind of come around on that as well. It was, uh, I, I had, something more like spiritual connection with, with the, with the outdoors and hiking. So like, that's part of it too. Like I really connected with being on top of a mountain and kind of being the only one out there and just looking over a lake or, you know, like all those, all those outdoor experiences, I guess, you know, whatever you want to call them. And, uh, so those, so those things definitely made me more skeptical of society, also just not sharing the values of what of what you see on TV, of what your friends are doing, maybe people around you that are making decisions that that you don't quite get and then just making very simplest conclusions about them. Yeah, I mean that's probably a lot of it too, just being young and thinking that that I know way more than I actually did.
1: <laughs> also, did you Is that you're accepting, is it, is it, do you think it's like a growing sense of humility that like, there are things you thought like, maybe you still don't feel like you totally fit in, but you have much more personal humility about like, well, maybe I don't know the right answer. This seems like the wrong answer, but maybe I'm wrong.
0: Yeah. Something like that too. I, I even, I told a friend maybe within the last couple of years and he was really surprised. I was like, I don't really value my values. It's like, I have values. (laughs) Everybody thinks their values are good. If there's a value that was better you would just change it because you would realize that that's that's not uh, the best value so I I mean I get that my values are the ones I think are best but I don't actually value my values that much I hope they'll be better in 10 years I hope they'll be even better in 20 years and I'm a lot more forgiving and accepting of other people that have varying values. Whereas when when I was younger, I would be out kind of outraged if someone didn't share my values, which is just so ridiculous. Because we all have different experiences, we all have different upbringings, and to just assume that I just learned this thing yesterday in a book, and now everybody I come in contact with needs to care about this and go read this book. And when they don't, uh, you get you get a little frustrated, and so you blame society. And so now I just realized like, no, no one's going to read a book. I want them to read <laughs> the same reason. If they told me to read a book, I probably wouldn't read it either. Cause I don't want to read that book. I want to read the books that I want to read or watch the things that I want to watch. So yeah, just, just coming to terms with the fact that other people aren't going to care about the same things as you. And that's completely fine.
1: Is there a way in which Siddhartha, over the years has, are there parts of it? that you highlight is kind of like, well, that was, that appealed to me as a youth because the end of the book, it does Peter out kind of like the, all the stories of the Buddha himself. He gets older and then he dies. Uh, and the people get old and they die at the end of this book. Is there, is there anything in here that kind of speaks to you now as an older reader of the book versus a younger reader?
0: So my last two to three readings, I really, relate more or or not relate more, but I love Vasu David. He is the ferryman, the older ferryman. And so I'm starting to realize that like he is the really admirable character. Whereas the main character, Siddhartha kind of has his own flaws. And I'm starting to see that more and more as, as I become older, kind of the flaws in Siddhartha and also Vasu David is a character that is illiterate. He's he's not he. I think it's safe to say he wasn't the Brahmin class. Whereas like Siddhartha is the Brahmin class. They say in the first few paragraphs, everybody loves Siddhartha. He's good looking. He's (laughs) handsome. Um, He's you know he's the best student. So he goes on. I mean Siddhartha has a pretty good life, a pretty easy life. He's extremely smart. The main thing he has against him is he's depressed. So yeah, so he's like he's got all the tools and he's depressed. I mean that's. So, I mean, there is a lot of arrogance with him. He's constantly showing that he's superior to to characters. He does it to his dad. He does it to the Samana. He does it to the Buddha. So, yeah, I mean, there's just those things I overlooked when I was younger because I was probably a little bit more like that as well, just being arrogant. And now I'm starting to see that, like, Vasu is a good listener. He's the one that... He actually speaks out to Siddhartha without, he gives him unsolicited advice. Whereas, like, Siddhartha has his friend come back to him at the end of the book, just begging him, just like begging him, annoying him to like help him in any way. <laughs> and Siddhartha's just like, eh, 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 you know, gives him these analogies that he knows, like, Siddhartha knows he's not going to be able to teach him anything.
1: So he's kinda, he already decided, I can't teach you whatever you need to learn about this, I can't teach you. So he's just kind of putting him off. Kind
0: of, and and uh, I mean, he's. I don't think he's intentionally being rude, but but like Vasu David, when like when Vasu David sees Siddhartha struggling for an extended amount of time, he finally steps up and's like, "Hey, dude, uh, get get your shit together. You know, listen to the river. The river will tell you." And uh, Siddhartha d- doesn't do that for uh, Govinda. He doesn't say, "Hey, man, go." I mean, and maybe and maybe he's right. Maybe he can't, but. There is like a difference there where like now I see as Vasu David the uneducated person, the one that's the one that really is the one that's really living by the practical wisdom, i guess
1: is there um th- Uh, That that Ferryman character reminds me, I just got obsessed in the last year I read um, The Confession uh, by Leo Tolstoy, where Leo Tolstoy experiences, he is in the same situation as Siddhartha, where he's wildly successful, his family's very happy, everyone wants him to speak, everyone wants him to write, everybody wants to hear what he has to say, and he winds up for a number of years having absolutely horrendous suicidal depression. And he talks about, there's this very famous line where he talks about making sure there's no guns in the house ever. Oh, he doesn't go hunting with his friends and he makes sure there's no rope in the house because he knows if he goes hunting, he knows he wants to kill himself. So he holds it off and he tries to figure out what is going on. Everything's great with me. Why do I feel so bad? And ultimately, kind of like this ferryman character, he winds up looking at, there's death all around and the people who are the most miserable are these impoverished peasants around me and yet, they are happy and content with their lot, and they deal with death very well. So, terrible things happen, and they don't sh- run from death. They take care of dead bodies. Whereas he's like, all these intellectual elites and everything were very uncomfortable with life and death, especially death. So, he starts looking, what can I learn from these peasants? And he kind of figures out there's this basic sense there's some kind of love that we have, a compassion helping people, which maybe the ferryman's figured out. You don't have to go to school for this. Tolstoy says all the intellectual elites are. They're, they're all off on the wrong track. They're vain, self-centered. They don't have any wisdom to impart at all. And he thinks these peasants are the ones that have the wisdom. And not by telling them things, but by watching what they do. So, like, you're talking about, like, watching what the ferryman does. How does he give advice? What kind of advice does he give? How does he live his life? Uh,
0: um,
1: yeah. I mean, yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> i I do need to um at the at the end does it feel like this the book comes to an absolute conclusion so Siddhartha is going on these journeys on his own saying i I can't teach anything, you can't teach anything to me, but I want to have these experiences and try to figure this stuff out and then the book eventually does end, and it' the ferryman's at the end of the book right
0: yeah uh so the yeah, you want you uh, spoil spoilers, I guess, or you can uh,
1: right. So this is the this is the case. So spoilers. If somebody's like, I want to read it for the first time. The book has been around a long time, so if you yeah, want to keep it yeah, fresh, you, then you can ignore it. Yeah,
0: you've had a hundred and one <laughs> years to read the book. I think I think right, we can spoil wrong. it at this point. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the ending. I I didn't really like the ending for years. I guess, Interesting. but it. It is very ironic. It's it's almost because Siddhartha does teach his friend he does pass the wisdom to him. He he does pass in, enlightenment to him, which is the book has been telling you since chapter 1 that it is not possible. <laughs> so it's it's extremely ironic, you know, it counterdicts itself. And then the book also even even personally the fact that I've gained so much from the book just by the experience of reading it is also a bit ironic itself. So I'm not sure if how intentional that's supposed to be. And I don't really have a great answer. I think, I think it's, it's a, if, if if you look at it like a fairy tale, it's, it's very much a fairy tale ending. And I think the original, the original title is something like a, an Indian fable or an Indian tale. So maybe so maybe it is supposed to be a cliche fairy tale type ending.
1: Um, and another thing in some of the writing we've done back and forth, you talked about, um, I don't think like Tolstoy, maybe when Tolstoy got really old, In letters I've seen in his last few years of being alive, people are still coming to him for advice and he's still dealing with, he's trying to be more patient with these people. Like you notice I got really irritated with these people, everybody showed up and they they wanted to talk to me about this and talk to me about that. And the next day he's writing in his diary, I'm still impatient, I'm still trying to deal with this stuff. So he's still on a journey of trying to become a better person. I have the feeling when Hess wrote this that Hess was not resolved about what the answer to life is for sure. We know what the meaning of life is. It's captured in this book. So maybe whatever uncertainty there is in the book is a result because the person writing it also not totally certain. Maybe there's not a clear lesson in the book.
0: Yeah. So there's this phrase called the small gap. Siddhartha tells, tells, tells the Buddha in the story, there's a small gap. And I think, I think you can see Hess's small gap in the story as well. Yes, because I mean exactly what you're saying. Hess, like Tolstoy, could not could not follow their own, yeah, you know, uh, I guess ethics and uh, and uh, morality. Where I mean Tolstoy more so, I guess, but but I mean Hess was not mentally healthy. He he was a very troubled. He did psychotherapy. He worked with a student that was right right under under Young, Mm -hmm. and uh, so I mean yeah he being able to write that book didn't help him live the second half of his life by any means. He he was a very disagreeable person, similar to Tolstoy. He spent a lot of time alone. There's a fun quote of his, something along the lines of someone asked him why why he writes, and he's like, "Well, I write because I can't paint the whole day." You know, like I, can't, I simply can't paint all day long, so I'll, I'll do some writing in between. But yeah, I mean, he lives—he's he, living up in the Alps, and I—he kind of abandons his kids. Uh, yeah, just not a very easy person to be to, to be around.
1: Did you ever in your life want to be so that thing you noted about not not so great? writing things about great virtues and ideals and the meaning of life, et cetera, as an artist or painting it or making the music and then those people not having easy lives, not making choices, good choices that we see regular people make all the time. Did you ever want to be at any point, read these books by these greats and be like, I want to be one of these greats? I don't know. I I
0: think that's also maybe a a young man's thing. You you think you're going to be famous. You think you're going to (laughs) be... Uh, professional athlete in five different sports and all these weird things when you're younger. Pro- I don't. I get. I guess I've. I guess I've always had this idea that that I had some something worth sharing that I've maybe come come to terms with that. But so I don't know exactly how, how uh, to answer that. I mean, I guess a little bit, but not, but not, not to the extent that you're saying. I don't think I ever wanted to be Leo Tolstoy.
1: Or Hermanos, yeah. Um, are there ways? So, in a, if this if this is inside baseball, and you don't talk about this stuff, you don't have to. Um, but I'm curious about your kids. Um, uh, my own internal journeys have kind of led me to some of the conclusions you're talking about. Where I'm like, well, what's so great about my values? I mean, what's? It's true there are some values like you need to be nice. To, I try to get my kid to be nice to people, and I try to get my kid if you promise to do something, you should do it. So there's some basic values. But really big, like trying to shape a kid. When you went into parenthood, did you try to shape and teach the way, you know, maybe people around Siddhartha did? Or are you like, no, nope, the kids need to do it on their own. I can't teach them to do this.
0: So a little more background. So I taught for I – taught, I taught in the U.S. for four years as a classroom teacher. So I, I have a master's in, ed, in education and okay. I taught English as a language art. And so I I'm f- familiar with with teaching and I know the benefits of education and 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 like I know the things that really make or break a child's future at the younger ages as well. So I I guess I've I started teaching my daughter the ABCs when she was like one, like once she started talking practically. Okay. Uh you know, we started doing phonics when she was like two, she's, she's only five now. So she just started kindergarten last week, actually. So
1: you're definitely aiming on the literacy. Yes.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I know like, liter- and then, and, and as I said, I didn't really start reading till after I graduated college, I was in my mid to late twenties and. So for me, I was terrible at reading growing up. I didn't learn phonics. I was one of those kids that I would count the paragraphs and try and predict what paragraph was mine when we were reading out loud in class. (laughs) And I had so much anxiety about it. And so I I mean, I really it's embarrassing that I was able to graduate college considering what my reading and writing skills were at the time.
1: (laughs) And you became an English teacher.
0: Yeah. So I had to go back. So, so my first <laughs> degree was in exercise and sports science.
1: Okay. Yeah. Like yeah. So go I got a degree in pushups.
0: Degree. Okay.
1: But then you got, then you decided to get right. Then you decide to get an English degree. So there's literacy, but do you feel like ugh, values or the meaning of life, uh, whether it's religion, spirituality, mysticism, or moral value, do you feel like you're really, you're a hard push on or a light touch when it comes to your kids?
0: Yeah, I don't really think about it that much. There was okay. So here's so here's an example. Yeah. We we have a a pass to our local museum, and our pass is a it allows a guest. A guest can take my daughter to the museum under our un, un, under our membership. It's not a hundred percent clear, but so so we had someone that that was watching our child for us, and and we were going away for a night, yeah. and uh, and so. I just said, yeah, the pass will get you in. If it doesn't, then I'll just, we'll just pay you back. Right. And, uh, and, and the woman looks enough like my wife where she went in and she just pretended to be my wife. (laughs) And so (laughs) she just
1: said, right. When they asked her, she just gave the name and like,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and so my daughter didn't say anything in front of. Uh, in front of the workers, she said something after they already got through. And so, and so our friend was saying, yeah, that's really cool. You taught your daughter to like be quiet and not, and not just blurb it. And I was like, I was like, no, that's not cool. For one, that's not what I taught my daughter. I was like, <laughs> I would have rather paid the full membership or, you know, whatever the full fee right. than to teach Cause what, what we really taught her is it's okay to, to, to lie. So
1: right, you're like your daughter really knows when to keep the con quiet and when to talk about it after. She's really good at managing that. I was
0: like, I was like, uh, she doesn't know that. We didn't teach her that. She's probably just too shy to speak in front of that person. But yeah, so so like, I would much rather pay twenty dollars than than tell my than show than teach by showing that it's okay to lie or to be dishonest.
1: So that teach by showing. I don't know if you see this. You feel like, in fact, I just saw this modeled for me a couple days ago the tell not show where it's like the parent is constantly telling the kid what they're supposed to do. And my attitude, yes, is kind of the same way. If you want a kid to do something, then you model it and then they either take it on or they don't, but telling somebody to do something, but not showing it all the time. I mean, people tell us crap all the time. Just like you said, like you're talking about books. People are telling us to read books all the time. Just because you tell me to read the book doesn't mean I need to or want to or anything.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, 100%, I think, uh, I think teachers see this a little bit more. Yeah, but I mean, you, you are teaching your kids every single second of the day, whether you realize it or
1: not. Yeah. Uh, So you're not trying, you're not trying to get people to read Siddhartha. Uh, You know, great if they do. Um, Is there anything originally we were talking about with this book, because I was thinking about this for another podcast oh man, we need to come up with some actionable stuff out of here. And so I'm wondering maybe just, you did have a few things. If anything jumps to mind, are there particular things you think people can, things they can learn from this book or an idea, not just the overall book and its plot, but a particular idea in here that really grabbed you and has never let go. Something that's kind of either in there, either a practice or something, some mindset or some idea in there that really grabbed you and still grabs you.
0: I would say there's a handful. I think I think kind of the teaching what what we just discussed. I think there is wisdom in the idea that you can't teach or you can't express wisdom. Like you can't transfer wit like I can't transfer wisdom to my daughter no matter how much I want to. I think that's I think that's right. But the flip side is you can teach a lot of things that can maybe help her to acquire wisdom so that's so that's kind of i guess the the i think the book practically shows that without explicitly saying it i think siddhartha's kind of he's maybe maybe wrong you know he's wrong about that that you can't or that teaching is is a waste of time or that you can't learn anything i think I think he proves that at, 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 at the end when he's able to somehow transfer some wisdom over to his friend. So I would say that comes away. It kind of has to. I mean, if you're reading something and you're taking something away, it's right. So, so that's that's you know that goes back to the ironic part. I would I would say another one that that makes the book hold up is scientifically and psychologically there's nothing really going on in the book that we can that we can write out just, you know um debunk scientifically so that's that makes it philosophically seem a little more sound I as mean, in there's no so w-
1: like for instance in many religious texts if you're not looking at them metaphorically there are wild supernatural claims or wild, uh, yeah, wild supernatural claims that crazy things happened or that crazy things caused it. And the book is not really jammed with that.
0: Yes. In, in Siddhartha, I'm, I, I think it's probably safe to assume that the character Siddhartha should believe in reincarnation, but the book doesn't, I don't even think it uses the word once. It definitely, it talks about cycles, but it doesn't, it, that's like a very Westernized westernized take on it 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 because I, I think a lot of westerners would especially probably in the 1920s would have a really hard time accepting that idea whereas like in the east it's not even something you would think about
1: right that if, if the practical aspect of like as am i brendan or you james supposed to think about what we're going to do and then based on what we do, that's how we're going to be reincarnated after we die. Right. A lot of Westerners are like, that doesn't really fit. Heaven and hell, sure, they got that down. But this idea that we're going to come back and back. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. So so that, I mean, yeah. So there's no things like that where you could just say, I, I mean, even, I mean, you you could make a scientific claim for, for reincarnation as well. But, but just like the oneness, uh, the interconnectedness of the universe, I think science is probably – saying more and more, that's right. I mean, we're all made out of the same elements and then those things are broken down and they're made out of the same pieces. And the further they look, the more it's kind of does appear to be a oneness, whether, the, I mean, maybe not a direct, you know, 100% correlation between philosophy and science, but I mean, it definitely fits. And, and same thing with like the psychological stuff that's going on with Siddhartha. I mean, you could, you could easily kind of, uh, one of the ones i like is is hedonic treadmill this idea yeah. that that we have like a base state and that we're always going back to that base state and even if something really good happens to us eventually we're back at the base state something really bad happens to us we go back to the base state and and i think you can see that in siddhartha too siddhartha has some really high points goes back to the base state has some really bad points goes back to the base state so I, you know i think like psychologically and scientifically the book kind of supports the world that that we're in right now.
1: Yeah, I do like I mean that has been my experience. I don't know if it's true or not. So there are some human beings that don't it, that doesn't seem to be as much for them. They really do think that they are achieving and growing and succeeding and that there's no kind of settling. So if you stop growing, they've they've they they perceive life as going up a ladder or down a ladder. So if you go down the ladder, you can go back up. They don't really perceive it's I think maybe what you're saying, it's more like a rubber band. Like you can get really, really happy over here, really, really sad over here. But the pressure your body and a, a psychology will exert is to try to pull you back to wherever your chemicals, the brain, wherever your brain's used to being, that's kind of where it wants to go. Just Let's just bring it back to where it was. So you can never get so happy you'll never be that sad again. You never get so sad you'll never be that happy again.
0: And then this is another one. This, this is maybe my my – the interpretation I like more now okay <laughs> is 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 more of a, a evolutionary uh, psychology approach where wheres the reason why Siddhartha can really figure it out as an old man is because he no longer has a biological need to do anything. <laughs> so I mean like when, when we're young you know uh, if you want to think of it we, we need to be the best so we can you know find the best offspring you know find the best partner to create our offspring even though we might like Siddhartha's not really trying to reproduce but he still has that that urge to be the best to seek to find something and i think as a young man like i definitely related with that and then with time eventually those urges kind of decrease and then eventually now this is my interpretation once you become an old man now you don't you don't have that evolutionary desire and and urges to, to keep seeking, to keep finding. And now you can kind of just sit back, raise your grandchildren, accept the world as it is. And so I, I think that's also, I think enlightenment is probably more like just not having the biological urges to, uh, to want to be the best and to want to do these other things and to just being like, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of cool with, with where life is now. I think that's probably, yeah, go ahead.
1: No, no, I was just gonna say that's fascinating because, you know, at the beginning you're like, ah, this feels more Hindu than Buddhist. And it absolutely does. The thing I've always liked about Hinduism is it sort of accepts these are the cycle. It's not just these mega cycles of like the creation is created and then the God destroys it and it's created again. Uh, but in the individual life, they have this homesteader time when exactly as you're saying, you're looking for a mate, you're having kids, you're building resources, so you can raise your kids. But then in the Hindu, these four life cycles, the one at the end is well, you are old. So you kind of run re- You don't give you don't throw away your family, but you don't have any responsibility to your family anymore. So now you can finally get old and wander as a wandering monk or a wandering beggar. Now, this is a period you can just wander. Think about the universe. So it does. Yeah, it kind of lends being more um accepting of that everybody has all these urges and this power for this this period of your life then eventually move on to another stage and another stage yeah
0: so i think the practical wisdom if someone wants the practical wisdom it's just to get old and then you you know <laughs> just just get old
1: yeah just so stay alive so stay yes stay alive and get keep, old right stay alive and get old and the wisdom and the insight will come
0: yeah yeah, the one, I mean, eventually you'll, you'll accept whatever oneness, you know, you find in the world and, uh, you know, you'll finally be happy.
1: I do feel less when you're younger. If you yearn for this kind of wisdom that comes later or you yearn for enlightenment, there's way more battle and grinding against the people around you. Like you described, like, kind of not fitting into society, being angry or judgmental about these people around you that don't share your values. And the older you get, you're like... Well, my values are about the same, but I don't hold on to them so tightly, and I'm not so bothered that all these other people don't live by these values. But yeah, that's oh, you just get old. Oh, your energy goes down. You just don't care as much about this stuff anymore. Like oh, okay, the goal is just to get old.
0: yeah, I think so. yeah, yeah, that that's probably it. So that so that's that's my practical advice from from the book, Get old.
1: <laughs> that is super other than people who unfortunately will die, like James Dean, people who would die in like car crashes at a young age. That's awesome. So if you can just stay old, you can, uh, you also can be enlightened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You'll get there eventually. You just have to get through, uh, young adulthood, middle ages. It's not a guarantee, I guess, but you know, it's the chances will significantly increase.